Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here, recovering from Covid in a freezing cold Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London. It's bloody cold here too. And we have a very distinguished guest, Richard, who also has done wonderful things for cricket across the world. Well, he certainly has. Uh, We heard about um, one of the theatres he's helped cricket uh, a few weeks ago. We met um, our guest, Tom Fletcher, in uh, a few weeks ago through um, Fernando Sugath and Will Dobson when uh, they spoke very warmly about his efforts to help cricket in Lebanon. He was at the time our ambassador in Lebanon, uh, but he's now principal of Hartford College. And before becoming ambassador in London, he advised three prime ministers on um, foreign policy uh, and on Northern Ireland. Uh, He advised in succession Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. David Cameron paid him a notable compliment, saying he was an expert on every single country on earth. So perhaps we'll have a conversation about Sao Tome and Principe uh, a little later in the programme, which is one of my favourite countries. But uh, welcome, Tom. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm now a recovering uh, ambassador. Tom, what is a uh, recovering ambassador? What are you recovering from? So I, st- I still actually write uh, diplomat on the landing card. You know, when it asks you to fill in your profession, I still put diplomat. And I suspect, you know, if I was to keel over tomorrow and was to try and think about which words to put on my gravestone, diplomat would probably still be there in some way. But I haven't done any real uh, diplomacy or, or ambassadoring, if that's a word, for uh, six years now. But what is you didn't answer the question? You said you you what are you recovering from? What is this disease which you had? So I think I think I've probably recovered now. But there's a I, I, it took me about a year to recover from Lebanon. I think emotionally, uh, you know, I got on the plane in Beirut, and the last two weeks in the job, every every morning I'd become more convinced that that was the day I was going to get blown up. And I start each day reading the the red jackets, the intelligence reports that would say who that morning would try and take a pop at me. And um, I think I suppose it's just the nature of, the, of that sort of role, the intensity and the, the stress of it, that certainly in those last few weeks, I was thinking, right, this is it, this is it. And I'd written letters to my two boys, basically saying, if I get it today, then you know, here are some bits and pieces to bear in mind in life. And so when I got on the plane at the end of Lebanon, 2015, uh, I pretty much wept all the way from... Beirut to Paris. I think there was that just release of uh, of tension. Um, it's so it's a you know it's a fairly it's a stressful job. You know you're you're in the public eye over there in somewhere like Lebanon. You're conscious that every decision you take can have all these different implications. You're kind of full on the whole the whole time. So maybe I was recovering from that, but it's a it's a pretty wonderful uh, life as well. So I'm I'm not complaining. Well, I visited you twice, you might remember, in once in your residence when I dropped in for breakfast on the way to Damascus. You might remember that in in uh, about 2013, I expect. Just, and, That's right. Um, and so, so I lived on the road to Damascus. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was only about an hour, hour and a half um, away. So you were probably getting fortified over breakfast before heading over the mountains and across the Bekaa Valley 
and up to Damascus, 2013. So a lot going on at the time. It was just, it was, yes, we were on the was. verge of Islamic State. We're kind of hitting the border and we were trying to fortify the border with watchtowers and keep them out of, uh, of Lebanon. But I think 2013 was also the year when we nearly had to evacuate all the Brits. You know, if, if Obama and uh, David Cameron had gone ahead with military action in Syria after Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons, then we would have been in a completely different position for the last couple of years of my time in in Lebanon. But what I was trying to say there is uh, you were very relaxed. You didn't give any impression that you felt that you're, you know, you, you, were, you, you were the ultimate cool, cool <laughs> diplomat. And then I went and visited you a year or so after that. And I did think it was very heavily fortified. It was the British embassy. That, and my word, it was like getting into Fort Knox. Um, getting into Yes, British I'm embassy. sorry about that. It, by that stage, the list of people who wanted to kill me was getting quite, quite long. I think it, a mortar had landed in my swimming pool, which is, I suppose, the, the very first world problem to, uh, yeah. to have. But yeah, by that stage, it was getting more stressful. We hadn't quite gone to the mattresses, um, but we had reduced the, the, the staffing levels by a long, long way. And of course, the embassy... And certainly the residents were very much in, in uh, Hezbollah uh, influenced bits of the city. Uh, and so we were always very conscious of that. Hezbollah I always the... felt that Hezbollah bits influenced bits of the city were rather safer than the Al-Qaeda influenced bits. But maybe which was the... Uh... Well, it's the nature of Lebanon. It, it, you, you never quite know who is who. And I, you know, I'd often worry... Very clear about... distinction between Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda. I think... Uh, uh, I often worried, though, about um, Hezbollah. I always thought if Hezbollah wanted to get me, they could get me pretty easily. Um, but they would do it probably disguised as someone else. Mm. On the other hand, Tom, uh, you've, uh, in spite of all the people trying to kill you, your book expresses a very strong emotional connection with Lebanon, doesn't it? Oh, very much, very much so. I mean, I was always told that you know, being in Lebanon would kill off my uh, idealism, my sort of zeal, uh, and actually it did the opposite. It's extraordinary, you know, the old line about, you know, when you're in a crisis, always look for the helpers. If you're, you know, Lebanon's a country in permanent crisis, and and yet, you know, the helpers are even more evident, just extraordinary people there living on the kind of front lines of of coexistence and doing extraordinary things. It's a it's a it's a very difficult country not to fall in love with. Um, what you have to always remember is that you you're not there to fix it. Uh, and, yeah. you know, famously, someone said Lebanon is very easy to swallow, but very hard to digest. All the more credits you, though, because. Uh... Fernando and Will's accounts of your intervention on their behalf, it was at exactly this moment of great security concern, and yet you turned up at the cricket match, you rescued the migrant community from the sort of bleak non-cricketing existence, uh, and by all accounts, you, you came and watched uh, in a public space. So uh, I think you... I, was, you yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I think my bodyguards were, were a bit more... Uh, skeptical about the idea of me heading down there on I think a Saturday morning. We took a big team of uh, of bodyguards and cars and so on. I think you know we talked about Raul Pindi um, being a bit of a road for the first England Pakistan test. I think literally we were playing on a road uh, mm. that morning. But it was actually I mean curiously I, I loved listening to your episode and your interview with Fernando and, and and Will. I mean two brilliant people who did huge amounts for cricket in in Lebanon, and it reminded me that actually. That, that effort to support the migrant community uh, and cricket was part of a wider effort to promote the rights of migrant workers across the Middle East. And about that time, 
I'd actually become a migrant worker. Uh, and so I did a job swap with a young uh, Ethiopian migrant worker called Kalkidan Nagusi. And uh, basically, I went and did her job. She showed me how to do her job. And, oh, and the photos of that uh, went viral across the Middle East. People were, were, in many cases, horrified that an excellency would be there mm. cleaning the bathrooms and so on. But more importantly, Kalkidan then came and did my job. And we went together to the interior minister and uh, appealed to him to do more for the, the rights of, of migrant workers across the, the country, you know, often in, living in terrible conditions. And as we walked out, normally I would give a press conference uh, after those meetings. And as we walked out, I said to Kalkidan, 18 years old, yeah, do you want to talk to the media? And she said, of course I do. And she walked out in front of those cameras and basically said, you've got to start treating us with dignity. You've got to start treating us with respect. And that led the news. And still now I bump into people, you know, what, 10 years on, younger people. And they'll say that was the day when, you know, we, we confronted our parents when we said, we've got to do this differently, when we changed things around. And so it did, it did have an impact, but there was a connection between that, you know, the great stories that Fernando was telling and, um, and that wider campaign. Uh, we heard from Fernando and Will Dobson about um, two or three weeks ago uh, about your efforts for them, Tom. Um, basically, they Fernando had been playing cricket in Lebanon for 17 years or so. They'd been um, under all kinds of pressure from the authorities. They'd lost their ground. Uh, they'd lost a means of playing cricket, which is very particularly important to the Sri Lankan community, uh, living in um, and working in Lebanon. Basically, they've very paid a very warm tribute to your efforts to find them a ground again to get them get the authorities off their back, and as we said, actually coming to watch the game in um, very difficult conditions. So um, it was a, a great effort on their behalf, and uh, great, if nothing else, a great legacy for um, your time in Lebanon. The match you watched, Tom, was that at a car park? It was. It was. I mean, I think they cleaned out or cleared out the, the vehicles that that morning. Um, I think it was a Sunday morning, so we figured that there wouldn't be many people around. But but yeah, basically we were playing on uh, on a tarmac uh, car park. I think it mm. took. I think it took a bit of spin. <laughs> it would, there, yes. there was a bishop of the, there was a bishop of Durham who, every time he walked down the aisle, used to speculate whether the uh, aisle would take spin. Um, but this, I think, another car park. <laughs> would definitely have take, take, veered off wildly. That said, they played by Fernando, I'm told by Will, plays brilliantly. I mean, they're really good players, aren't they? They're not Superb just... Superb players. Yeah. Superb players. I think they often use um, one of those balls that bound up with lots of tape, so you get quite yeah. a lot of reverse swing on it uh, as well. But I, I recall you know, quite a few divots just outside the off stump. So if you could land it in there, then who knew what was going to happen? I mean, we, a book I cited uh, was Naked Diplomacy, but I think you have two others out um, very shortly. Do tell us tell us about them. Aha. Well, it's very kind of you to mention that. Um, so the, the other two came out this year. There's a non-fiction book called Ten Survival Skills for a World in Flux, which is really about how we transform education and, and pass on to the next generation the skills they really need uh, to thrive, uh, including being able, to, being able to turn the ball in a car, on a car park. And then the other the other's a novel called The Ambassador. It's a crime novel set in the embassy in Paris. So if you like kind of diplomatic Ooh, intrigue yeah. and ambassadors falling out of windows and SAS people and Lebanese warlords and so on, 
um, do look out for that. I, you know, the best the best bits of it are true, and the, the boring bits I made up. Uh, well, we certainly look out for that. Um, any cricket in it? In the in the any cricketing passages? So not in this one, but I, I've been asked to write a sequel, and there is some cricket oh. in the in the sequel. You're a cricket player yourself, I believe. Um, well, I'm, I'm very uh, delighted to be described as that. Uh, I don't think anyone from the teams I've played in. Uh, your official profile says so. Um, the government says so. So it must. It must, must be, be true. <laughs> it, it must be true. Yeah. So I, I grew up in um, in Kent. So I grew up watching Kent at Folkestone and um, and St Lawrence Ground in Canterbury, going to going to matches with my amazing uncle Buster, who had a had a season ticket, and that was the I suppose the mid eighties. Uh, you know the the Elams, the the younger Cowdrays, um, Mark Benson, uh, Neil Taylor. You know, re- a really uh, solid Kent team, but also coming off the back of that amazing decade in the seventies when when Kent was so dominant. Um, so it was a brilliant time to be watching cricket, and I suppose my passion for cricket started there. Were you able to continue in the playing in the in the diplomatic service? Definitely. I mean, it, the Foreign Office has got a team, hasn't it? Um, yeah, that's right. So I, I, I played a bit of cricket um, at Oxford. I was actually the, the college that I'm principal of now. I was, I was a student there in the in the mid '90s. I played a bit of cricket uh, here. Then went into the Foreign Office and joined the. Yeah, we had a Foreign Office team. So the London-based team played five or six matches a year at that point. Um, we played at, at Chiswick. I suspect they still do. The highlight of the season was the match against um, the Commonwealth Secretariat, uh, which we would play at um, Blenheim Palace. Incredible pitch in the gardens of, uh, of Blenheim. Gosh. And I went to Kenya. My first posting was Kenya and had games um, you know, as far north as Samburu. We'd all fly in and people would land their tiny planes on the on the strip, uh, a very, very dry strip up there. We play these very competitive games against, it was often called the, the High Commission versus Settlers. And these were, you know, also known as the, the KCs, the Kenya Cowboys, um, huh. who, were, who were based up in uh, all, all, all corners of Kenya. So played some classic games there. Actually, in Kenya, while I was there, we had one of the ICC knockout tournaments. Now, I guess it would have been... 50 overs in those days and because no one else wanted to do it i volunteered to be the uh the the high commission's kind of cricket rep which meant i got to look after nasa hussein ashley giles and the england cricket team while they were there and the highlight of that was that they let me come down and do a net with them and and the, the, well that was the highlight the low light was that my first ball was to freddie flintoff and he smacked <laughs> it straight back with unerring accuracy and at great speed, uh, into um, into my groin. Uh, obviously, wasn't wearing a box uh, bowling at the time. One doesn't normally as a, as a bowler. Yeah. And um, took took a fairly serious knock. And of course, I was down. You know, trying to hold back the tears while the England cricket team stood around, chuckling at this sort of idiot from the High Commission, yeah. rocked up and crashed their cricket net. But to make it more complicated, you know, I staggered off to my Land Rover. And went home and having you know found some ice and, and and used the ice fairly delicately for a few hours. That evening, I had to go into town and present the prizes at the Miss Kenya competition. <laughs> uh, this was one that the High Commissioner had been asked to do, and which he sensibly had delegated. And so I had to stagger up on stage, you know, stumbling along, barely able to stand with this kind of um, uh, injury very delicate injury 
and then hand out the these prizes to these um, extraordinary Miss Kenya contestants. So that that probably that slightly ended my I think my Kenya uh, cricketing career. But then I played. I went on from there. I went. I worked at the MC in Paris for four years. We had a cricket net in the mm. in the garden of the embassy in Paris on Rue Faubourg Saint Honoré. Beautiful street, a fantastic grass tennis court, the only tennis court in grass tennis court in in central Paris, but also a cricket net tucked in mm. at the back right, right. of the grounds there. Was and it we, grass or uh, matting? Uh, matting, matting. Oh, I, remember, yeah, I, I, yeah. I badly sprained my ankle coming off the side of it um, once. But it, uh, so we used to do nets there every Wednesday evening. And then we'd play again, yeah, sort of four or five games a year. We had some fantastic games down in the Loire Valley um, against local yep. against sort of expat teams too. Yep. down yep. there, Mick Jagger's team and so on down there. Um, so that was that was great fun. Um, and the embassy, well, half decent uh, half decent side and then my next posting was Lebanon I didn't get to play so much but you know as we discussed I got to go and watch some pretty extraordinary cricket in the car park tell us about um Mick Jagger's team I didn't know he had a team let alone that he played in well, France he's a, big cr- he's a big cricket fan I knew yeah. that mm. he is a big big cricket fan and I mean he, he, he certainly I think he's quite an unreliable team member I hope that's not uh, being too unfair to him um mainly because he's he's traveling so touring so much um but he shambled along uh, in uh, in his cricket whites, and I guess he's got a pretty open invitation that when he comes along, they put him straight on uh, mm. to play. I think um, I think he was sort of quite decent, medium pace bowler. I didn't see him bat, um, but you know, seeing him running in with that very distinctive kind of hippie uh, mm. hip swinging gait uh, was was pretty intimidating for a batsman. How, you mentioned the Commonwealth. I presume you got tranced by the Commonwealth cricket team, didn't you? They would tend to win. They would tend to win. They, uh, so they basically obviously drew their, their team from all the high commissions in, in London and from the Commonwealth Secretariat. Uh, there was one Commonwealth Secretary General, I think it was Sharma, who was a very uh, decent kind of number three, number four uh, batsman and kind of took us, took us apart one year. But yeah, we would tend to get um, pretty badly trounced. Occasionally, we had one minister. There was a minister called Derek Fatchett in the mm, yeah, government. He, yep. he mm. was pretty decent. I think he was one of the best politicians to ever turn out for the uh, for the Foreign Office in my time. Yeah, he was. I toured South Africa with him um, wow. just after just after the end of apartheid. He was in on that tour. He was he was yeah, he was quite he was quite an handy quite a handy bowler. Quite yeah. Um, would have, obviously would have been better if he'd played more often, but um, he obviously knew how to play. Yeah. Um, Tom, did you, um, uh, you played some cricket as uh, in your diplomatic career, but I wondered if you were involved in any cricketing diplomacy, um, whether it had played a role in, in diplomatic relations as it has in well, several times in history. So probably not beyond the um, those examples. Certainly when when the England cricket team came out to Kenya that time, we took them out and about and we went to visit schools and so on. So there was a big soft power value to having them uh, in Kenya with us at the time. Uh, and in Lebanon, I suppose those, those car park matches were a form of diplomacy. They were helping, uh, helping to promote these objectives we had around uh, migrant rights and uh, coexistence between the different communities. I think one of the best bits of cricket diplomacy actually over the last couple of years has been the work that Christian Turner has done, uh, a high commissioner oh. in Islamabad where he's really put cricket at the centre of the cultural relationship. And that's meant, 
you know, lots of interesting social media. It's meant turning up. It's meant being on the cricket shows and so on. But but also behind the scenes, he's clearly done huge work to make it possible for the current tour, you know, the, the England Pakistan tour that's going on as we as we're meeting to take place. Yes, I, he had to undo the enormous damage created by the noxious uh, English cricket board, which trashed, did its best to trash our relations with Pakistan um, by suddenly pulling out of that one-day tour um, a year ago. And Christian Turner let it be known that Britain did not, the British government was against that decision. And, um, luck, and a few de- days or weeks afterwards, the chairman of the ECB uh, ceased to be chairman of the ECB. It was a very dark moment in cricket. Yeah. But, uh, Christian Turner's done a fantastic job um, in uh, making this this tour going on at the moment a, a success. Actually, he's about to leave Pakistan. He's, and he's, been, yes. he's uh, yeah. putting out a foot on his Twitter account. He's giving a, every day a new memory, as it were, of his time of his time there. He's been absolutely superb in uh, in Islamabad, but of course he was he's been superb in 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 all the jobs he's done. He's um he's one of the very best. Where's he off to now? Do you know? I think I've got a, a little bit of an idea, but if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Oh, I see. It's been it's been announced. It's been announced. So there's no um. He's going to be. Uh, I think it's political director of the foreign office, or geo. I think it's director of geo geopolitics. I think is the official title. It's, it's been announced. It's in, it's in his. There we go. So I won't profile. have to kill you yeah. in that case. No, yeah. no, no. no. Um, but he can probably kill you if he wants to from that job. Uh, maybe. I um. I, I, can I just pay a tribute though while we're on Pakistan to the inventor of cricket diplomacy, who was who died a couple of months ago, Humayun Khan, who was a fabulous diplomat for Pakistan. I think he was High Commissioner in Britain at one stage, um, and he was the one who negotiated. And arranged uh, the cool the, the warm up of relations from a very cool period. I think it was eighty seven, wasn't it? The Pakistan cricket tour of of, of India, where uh, Zia went went down and watched a Test match, uh, and it really kind of solved a lot of problems. And that was Humayun Khan's doing behind the scenes. Superb. So in that case, let me let me pay tribute then to um, maybe a lesser known, more recent diplomat. There was a guy called Tony Brennan who I used to play cricket with in, uh, in Paris. He was part of the embassy team in Paris. And he, he, then, he, he basically went on uh, to be right at the heart of that whole saga over uh, Zimbabwe uh, mm. and really went out on a limb to ensure that we, uh, we gave asylum to, to uh, Henry Alonga mm-hmm. um, and put a lot of personal capital in. And I remember Henry was there at Tony's wedding, uh, in France, um, and it was a real example of how, you know, of someone going going beyond the script in order to do the right thing. In this case, for uh, for Henry Alonga, Tony sadly is no longer with us. But he was he was basically he was a great wicketkeeper and a great diplomat and a and a great comedian. And I think by his uh, stand up comedian, um, I think he would be he would admit that he wasn't the best comedian, wicketkeeper, or diplomat in the world. But I would always say he was the best. Wicketkeeping diplomat comedian there's ever been. In which in which order? <laughs> which order? Which order of priority? Uh, he he used to be pretty good behind the stumps. He used to he used to have one of those kind of Alan Knott um, kind of floppy hat. No, Jack, Jack Russell floppy hats. Jack Russell. Um, but would leap around a bit more like Knotty. Yeah. I uh, bumped into um, 
I was done in, I just like to drop a name occasionally, I went down with Basil de Oliveira to the 2003 World Cup while I was writing my, researching my book on him. Oh, and um, so I got invited uh, to the opening ceremony and I found myself behind the scenes of all the players from all the teams and I had a chat with Andy Fly. I said, what are you going to do when you get to play that, go, go up to Zimbabwe and you're playing against, uh, playing there against England? Uh, and he said, oh, we've got, we've got a plan or two up our sleeves. He said, didn't tell me what it was, but it was the black armbands he was referring to. Of course, Alonga was the other one, other great cricketer involved in that, which led to his, the need. I was, I was really heartening to know that behind the scenes, the Brits, the British embassy was sorting, sorting out Alonga, making sure that he could find somewhere to go afterwards, because it was very brave, uh, what, uh, Alonga and brave. indeed Andy did. Yeah. And I think he went on to become a, a dancer, didn't he, as well? I've got this memory that he might have been on Strictly Come Dancing or something like that. Henry, Henry, was, Henry was a singer, wasn't he? Henry That's Morgan. it, yes. He became he was a singer and he was a professional singer. I mean, he had a very, very good voice. Yes, that's it. But would he, would he then be the best singing cricketer that we can think of? Who else would have a great voice out of cricketers of yesteryear? We, uh, important piece oh. of uh, we need to research this, Richard. For we need our to research that, Don I mean, I can't, Don Bradman was a great pianist and a composer, and his granddaughter's a a, um, a professional singer who's fantastic opera singer. Record, I've had the privilege of hearing uh, her. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, there's a separate episode then. There's um, singing a new cricketers. episode. Yeah, great singing cricketers. I look forward to that. Uh, I've heard some very bad singing cricketers. Um, <laughs> But uh, we won't go into we won't give them a platform. Um, I wrote a I wrote a, a cricketing song called Sinatra's Last Over, and we won't go into that either. But we might, I might send it to you afterwards. Um, I'm seventy three. Well, I'll do the first the opening lines. Yeah, I'm go on, Rich. Go on. I'm I'm seventy three. There's pain in every joint, especially each knee. So give me the ball. I really hope I don't embarrass you all. I'm bowling, my friend, at match end, and we can't wait to lose. So give me one for the over and one more for the booze. Beautiful. Very good. Wow, that's terrific like it, stuff. Like it. it reminds me, I should give a plug for um for my father, for, who is the Strollers. My, my social cricket team is called the Strollers. Oh. And he is the, uh, the Strollers Poet Laureate and has brought out, a, I should have it with me really, um, a compendium of of similar sorts of, of poems adapted from other songs and poems, but about the Strollers cricket team. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, I might even compare notes. I'm w working on a carol at the moment. It's called, um, yeah, it begins, I saw three slips come standing close on cricket match day, on cricket match day, but I haven't got any further. Yeah. <laughs> is that great? Is, I think there's a great, I don't know if it's Dad's line or someone else's, but the one about the, um, the ancient mariner wicketkeeper who stoppeth one in three. Yes, indeed. I've um, I've heard that one a few times. I've heard that of goalkeepers, of course, too. Yeah. But by um, the way, can you solve we, a problem for me, Tom? When I was when Richard and I were researching our history of cricket in Pakistan, we got to the nineteen sixty eight nineteen sixty nine tour of uh, Alf Pakistan by England, the MCC, as it was then called, uh, after the South Africa tour had been cancelled, and. I read all the uh, sort of literature around it, you know, the autobiographies of Graveney and Cowdery and people who were on that talk. 
And it was it also this massive diplomatic traffic between uh, I was then uh, Pindi I think was in the capital and uh, and London and in fact Sri Lanka where they went on a preliminary tour. And so I thought I must find this ta- traffic. And so off I went to the National Archive. I couldn't find any of it. It was not none of it. There was no diplomatic cable related to that tour. Now there was one interesting thing about the tour, which was that the MCC was sent into a war zone, i.e. Dhaka. Well, actually, all of Pakistan was a domestic insurrection against the Ayub Khan dictatorship. And there was a a, a secessionist movement, as you know, in in East Pakistan. Not a single diplomatic uh, 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 cable was available to me about a cricket tour of Pakistan. And of course, the British embassy was advising the... Uh, the national cricket team to go into, particularly in Dhaka, which was in, uh, a war zone, and of course Dhaka was under the control of the rebels. And you, can you give me any light about what's happened to those cables? I'd love to see them. I can't, I'm afraid, Peter. I, they, I'm surprised they're not in the archives. I mean, they must have been written. The, uh, you know, an embassy in in that era would would have been churning out cables all the time. You know, you've been sending home a couple a day, probably. Um, the cables over time, I, I led a review of the Foreign Office a few years ago, and cables, well, telegrams uh, then became egrams, and they're now diptails, which obviously, you know, come instantaneously between capitals. But in those days, they'd come back by a more laborious route. I'm surprised they're not around. I can't imagine that they've been so highly classified uh, that they couldn't be released, because all sorts of controversial stuff from that era is is very uh, accessible um so it's a it's a mystery i'm afraid is there anybody i could go to so i think if you went to the uh fco research group um so there's a there's part of the office called basically the research analysts there will be a specialist there on south asia and i don't know what their name will be at the moment but they should be quite easy to find and that would be that would be the person. There's no question. It wasn't there in queue in the National Archive because I actually, because I, I couldn't find it. I thought maybe I'm an idiot and I employed a professional historian to go and uh, try and dig it out. It all vanished. Uh, it is true, of course, that Britain at that stage and the US were backing uh, Ayub Khan. And that may, in retrospect, have seemed sort of <laughs> a bit embarrassing. I could see that. Uh, and this was a policy designed, this is what I speculated, to prop up Ayub Khan um, against uh, a democratic movement, which of course the British never do. So I couldn't. I mean, officially, I, I um the uh, also I also studied the um, the cables of our man in in Cape Town uh, the previous summer, who was called Nickel, and they were very shaming because he was so far entrenched in the apartheid establishment. It was beyond belief. Um, he was part of the apartheid establishment. And um, he would go and see uh, Foster, the noxious prime minister of South Africa, at the height of apartheid, and send these groveling cables telling uh, the uh, back to London, saying what a splendid man. Uh, that's what it was. He, and he was, he was incredibly credulous. He would be given one... Set one lie after another by Foster, swallowed them whole, saying what access he'd got. Uh, it was quite unbelievable. Yeah, it um, 
I think, yeah, I, I, I hesitate to, uh, I haven't read the cables, but uh, you always worry, you always worry about what the, you know, what a historian will make of, of your telegrams in, in 30 years time when they, when they put them all back to back. Talking of being that kind of credulous, you know, um, fawning around access to, uh, to a leader. We had one ambassador um, who used to always write in his cables, when I saw the president, um, and it, but he'd always leave out the um, the parentheses, which were um, when I saw the president on television uh, yesterday. Mm. But he'd always give this impression of incredible access and proximity to power uh, that didn't really exist. <laughs> Can we name this um, ambassador? I think we should embarrass him. No comment. It's um, by the way, it's not um, just British ambassadors who are guilty of this. Um, British journalists are too. Yeah. 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 Well, um, I think I'd like to move on a little bit uh, and um, want to read out a quote uh, from your book, Tom. Um, you wrote, it should be about soft power, really. It's in the section about soft power. It should be a rule of modern diplomacy that a British embassy can never have too many pictures of David Beckham on the wall. And I think if you were doing a new edition, you might substitute Jude Bellingham. Yes. Um, Ditto Argentina and Messi, Portugal and Ronaldo. When you have individuals whose faces are known the world over, it is insane not to deploy them. And you go on in the book to talk about, um, to call for Britain to tell a, a national story, sort of projecting its values. And I just wondered if um, sport generally, and cricket particularly, can make a greater contribution to this. Organised cricket's now played in... 175 countries and it's a sport that's still especially associated with Britain and I just wondered if you thought um, cricket could play more could do more uh, to establish this national narrative of which you speak I'm sure it could I'm sure it could and maybe now uh, to modernize that quote we'd say you know every high commission in a cricket playing country should have Ben Stokes uh, up on the wall um, terrifying <laughs> <laughs> terrifying cricketers from the host country um yeah. yeah no i mean sport is such a key part of a country's narrative of, of a country's soft power story a country has to be magnetic it has to be aware of its own story um every year i'm involved in this effort to rank countries by their soft power and to see who's going up or down that table and sport plays a massive part in that you know is it any surprise that britain was top of the soft power league table in 2012 when we did such an amazing job hosting the Olympics. And, you know, the national story, talking of narrative, the national story we told about ourselves at the opening ceremony was absolutely fascinating. And so cricket has got to be a big part of that. And, you know, when countries do it well, you know, it's why there's always such competition to host these events, maybe maybe less so after uh, the current World Cup. Um, mm. The countries that do that well can link it to that national story and can link it to that sense of being magnetic. Indeed. Um, but that leads me on to wonder whether, uh, to wonder, we have a very, seems to be a very hands-off policy in terms of government and sport. We, on, the, on the whole, government leaves sport to sporting authorities in this, in this country, and it leaves international sporting questions to um, international sporting bodies. Uh, I personally think a lot of international sporting bodies are absolutely hopeless 
in dealing with um, with any political question. But I just wonder how, given the way in which other countries, and particularly certain hostile ones, exploit sport um, and sort of colonise it and use it for their own purposes, can we sort of afford to be continue this this hands-off policy? And should the Foreign Office maybe take over questions of international sporting relations? That's an interesting thought. I mean, so so where it works well, where bits of cricketing diplomacy, for example, work well, you know, some of these examples we've discussed, it often depends on an individual being personally passionate. Um, you know, we mentioned Christian in Islamabad and Tony Brennan uh, on Zimbabwe and so on. So sometimes I think to artificially create uh, a position for someone to do that wouldn't work unless it was someone with a natural uh, passion. By the way, I completely, I completely agree with you on international sporting bodies. I was with David Cameron in 2010. I was running the England um, 2018 World Cup football bid. One, you know, so that was the that was the meeting actually where the 24. I mean, maybe it's not fair to call them all corrupt, but as a body, the 24 executive members um, awarded 2018 to Russia and 2022 to to Qatar. I remember on the on the England bid, we'd won just about every single category. And as we left, we felt pretty confident flying home. And, you know, I was updating you know, on my BlackBerry trying to get the news in to see the results. And, and afterwards, I went up to uh, Jack Warner, who was one of the FIFA delegates. And I said, you know, wh- why do you think you can get away with this? And he just looked at me deadpan and just said, who's going to stop us? You know, it was this brazen uh, corruption that was going on in that blatter. Uh, era. And so I was delighted, actually, that over the, you know, what, the 12 years since, a number of folk, including many very quietly inside government, have found a way to to stop them. And, you know, there's been this quiet effort to settle some scores there. And, um, you know, it's been done pretty well. Uh, Tommy mentioned, uh, alluded Qatar's Qatar's experience with the World Cup, and um, that must be one of the worst bits of promotional spending in um, in history, mustn't it? I mean, uh, Qatar's really done very bad. Qatar bought the World Cup to um, improve its reputation. Um, its reputation has really never been lower. I mean, millions of people who didn't know where Qatar was now um, have taken against the country over human rights considerations uh, and everything else. Um, do you think this problem of of sports washing will eventually cure itself in that way? Um, that when with if you buy yourself a higher profile through sport, you're going to have to live up to the values that people associate with sport. Yeah, it's, it'd be fascinating to see. I mean, I, I wish it was happening more or had happened more with Russia. You know, I mentioned Russia, um, mm. you know, and that 2018 World Cup, where basically much of the, the foreign policy and the diplomacy, or I think we could call it diplomacy, but the statecraft that um, Putin has exercised around the world you know, was straight out of what he was doing in, in Zurich in 2010, you know, divide and rule, buy people off, threaten other people, do dodgy deals, uh, and so on. And and Russia didn't really seem to pay much of a penalty for that. Russia got much less bad publicity than, than the Qataris have four years, yes. four years on. And um, even, you know, Russia's antics in the Olympics don't seem to have done them that much lasting uh, damage. But you're right. I mean, I, I wonder if the Qataris, uh, at the end of all this, 
will look back and wonder, you know, was it really worth? Was it really, really worth it? What, Can I just what, uh, come come in? I stick up for Qatar because I I've written in defence of Qatar's World Cup bid, um, and I'm, I've seen we see a lot of things. Basically, this is the first Muslim country to have a World Cup, and a lot of a lot of the British press has just been naked Islamophobia, um, and uh, at the uh, in the run up to the World Cup. For instance, on the homosexual rights issues, uh, you know, I've never seen hardly anything written about the fact the Premiership, British Premiership, English Premiership is not there's not a single out gay player, which is ridiculous. But that isn't a national scandal in Britain. There's never nobody nobody ever makes uh, an issue about Singapore or any British or, or, or even actually Saudi Arabia, which is a British ally. Um, uh, and so th- this was uh, got up. Uh, there's no question that the UAE, w- which is not friendly to Qatar, uh, was a, a agitated a great deal for, against Qatar. And actually, this World Cup itself has been an incredible success. And um, it's really put the Arab world on the map, football-wise, um, you know, and it's one, been one of the World Cup, best World Cups I've ever enjoyed. And I think there's a, and you, and you make the point about Russia. You know, there was no, nobody was bothered about Russia, despite the fact it was on the road which took us to Ukraine. And, uh, but because it was Qatar, which was an easy, tar- soft target, um, the British press and uh, quite a lot of the world's press, including a fabricated, stunning amount of fabrication. Uh, you know, six, what was it? The Guardian said there were 6,500 workers had died. Absolute rubbish. Uh, the French press was kind of really horrible coverage, racist coverage inside a country which has a real problem with Islam. And so I'm sticking up for uh, Qatar, I'm afraid. Well, I, I mean, I think it's quite interesting, that, as you say, the, I mean, I, I would love Qatar um, to decriminalise homosexuality. I think it'd be a great step forward. Um, but they, you know, the idea that Qatar um, invented homophobia in football is is probably a bit of a stretch isn't it i mean given what you say about other about football uh, elsewhere it was it was i mean when we think of it as a as a uh, you know richard described it as a, as a big failure of a world cup i'd be curious to see what it's done to to their soft power in other parts of the world i mean clearly we can see what it's done to their reputation in in the west and in the in the media coverage but i wonder if you know in 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 senegal or in ecuador um how mm, how, they're, how they're reporting uh, these yeah. issues and and there was one in particular that I thought was fascinating early on when the UK press wanted to really have a go on the uh, lack of alcohol. Uh, you know, how you know how dare anyone say that we can't turn up at matches, you know, completely hammered. Um, and actually, a lot of the coverage has suggested that the fans are quite comfortable with the fact that, you know, there's a less violent atmosphere around, there's, you know, less, ab- less abuse because there's less alcohol uh, around. And maybe... Maybe our model of everyone drinking six pints before a sports match, you know, isn't always the best. Indeed, and they're entitled to. I mean, they have different standards to us, different values to us. And I know it's an old-fashioned idea nowadays that uh, countries should have their own values and standards and shouldn't conform to a universalist Western model. But, um, but they, if you if you put yourself up to host a universalist sporting event, then it seems to me that you do have some obligation 
not to impose your particular set of values on on what's on what's meant to be a global event. Qatar has been vilified. I agree. That doesn't necessarily that doesn't of itself mean that Qatar was right to was a right choice to host the World Cup. It seems to me that the improvements that have been made in Qatar have been made as a result of pressure, not be, and certainly not as a result of pressure from FIFA. They've been uh, a response to um, um, they've been a response to the campaigns against it from 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 around the world, and they have uh, there have been some improvements. Um, but um, I feel like I'm a I'm, I'm a in my diplomatic role here, mediating between the two hosts of the uh, <laughs> podcast. I, I should step in and do full on yeah. peace. You know, George Mitchell says yeah. a peace process is 799 days of failure and one of success. I feel like I should uh, kind of mediate oh. between the two of you now. Yeah. I think but, we should move um, on. Actually, I, I don't we can agree about FIFA. So I think we ought to talk about the ICC. We're a cricket. We're a cricket themed podcast. Um, Tom, I don't know if you've had any dealings at all diplomatically with with the ICC. Um, we've um, um, been very critical of it now on, on a number of issues, and it seems one thing that stands out. It seems to me among about all international sporting bodies is they are not accountable to anybody. They're not accountable to sports, certainly not accountable to sports lovers worldwide. I don't know if that's your experience with um, with others, but um, yeah. uh, they're really accountable only to themselves. Yeah, um, I, mean, and, I think that's a huge, um, it's a huge problem in sports governance. And I mean, if you look from, from my, you know, from my world of diplomacy and statecraft and so on, you know, we've got this massive crisis of confidence in international institutions that they're not representative enough and that they're they're not responding in an, in an agile enough way to the the challenges we face. But they, you know, they look like um, extraordinary examples of responsiveness and accountability compared to the sports bodies, as you describe, which are, which seem to me to be completely detached from the interests of uh, of fans. It is. I mean, um, in our view, I think it's fair. I think Peter would be with me on this one. The ICC is now a fiefdom of India. It's now a fiefdom of Indian, you know, commercial and political interests. Um, it is certainly not transparent. Um, we've wrote, to, I wrote to them very recently about three really big political issues on their plate: Afghanistan, Aramco deal, uh, Ukraine. They don't even they don't even reply. They've never given any account of their decision making. They've not even given any account of the, you know, the formal steps they've taken. Whether there's any voting on on any of the on any of these issues, we know nothing about. Um, how the ICC reaches its decisions, and it certainly doesn't. Um, it seems to me take into account the political dimensions of um, of anything it does. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Hmm. Was that your experience? Well, well I, I sense we're rather giving you lectures rather than asking you questions. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's how I'm feeling, Tom. The wrong way around. Would, would, would you not agree? <laughs> Did you find that British? Prime ministers were interested in um, cricket, Tom. So, so I worked for um, for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, David Cameron. Uh, I don't think the TV was often switched across to the cricket, uh, whereas it was. I mean, with Gordon, if the football was on, then you know, then all the TVs in Number Ten were switched to the football. He was a massive Wraith Rovers fan, but followed mm-hmm. just about any football uh, that was on, but not not so much cricket, I guess. We haven't really had a cr- true cricket lover since since John Major, I assume. Um, Theresa May. 
Or maybe, oh, you're right. Of course, Theresa May was a cricket fan. But we, but we did try to um, uh, use sports diplomacy, use the soft power of cricket on some of our overseas visits. So when, when I was with Gordon on the way to uh, India, um, you know, it was, I think it was on the plane where he decided that he wanted to give a knighthood to Sachin Tendulkar uh, and, and recognised how you know, that would be the biggest story, really, of the, of the trip, bigger than any trade deal or anything else that we, that we did. And then actually also um, in, in India uh, with David Cameron. Why was that blocked? Because it seems a very good idea. If anybody deserves a knighthood, it's Tendulkar. What happened to that idea? So I'm, I'm not sure where in the system that then got stuck. Maybe, maybe the system thought that we were rushing it through um, or that it was too political in some way because it was linked to the visit. Um, but I'm not sure. And that's another one to dig into the archives for, to find out why why that didn't happen uh, because certainly all of us on the trip and and the high commissioner at the time all thought it, it was not a no-brainer actually to give Sachin Tendulkar a, uh, a knighthood um and actually my next trip to India was with David Cameron uh a, a couple of years later and there we did actually go out and play some cricket and um I think we released a photo of uh of the boss um quite a decent kind of cover drive yeah actually. i remember that photo yeah um but i have actually in a chest here with all right but where i'm speaking to you i have a chest of all my a trunk of all my number 10 memorabilia and in there i've got nine or ten outtake photos of um of david i don't think he i i don't think he'd mind me saying this of david cameron's um less successful cricket shots but we we carefully edited those out of the record and and released the one where he's smacking it through the covers. By the way, David is quite a quite a keen cricketer. I yeah. played quite a lot with him actually. I, I, he's a good hardy batsman, reasonable medium fast bowler, and he's you know, uh, and so he's quite a handy player actually. Yeah, uh, and he was he knew about he liked the game very much. Yeah, yeah, I imagine he watches quite a bit, and he was he played quite a lot as well. He certainly played a few times for Lords and Commons, um, for Parliament's team. We, Peter, Peter and I, both got into trouble with Nawaz Sharif uh, um, describing his, <laughs> his Prime Minister of Pakistan and describing his um, his cricketing prowess. Um, we, we were practically blacklisted, practically expelled from the country when um, that phrase appeared, <laughs> describing him playing playing cricket with his staff, with his staff in the field. He'd hit a cover drive and we said... Um, the ball was not so much intercepted as escorted to the boundary. He was, um, we also he was drew, it, drew attention was, to his he habit. He furious with that. He was furious. Hmm. When, he, when, he, when he went into bat, his, um, his, uh, the chief of his cabinet, I think it was, would be umpiring. Oh. Uh, he tended not to get decisions against him. I think he gave a few <laughs> retrospective no balls as well <laughs> when, they, when, they, when they were needed. Yep. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, well, if, if you are going to run, the, if you're if you're going to if you're going to run the country, and if you're going to be um, if you're, if you're going to play cricket, I think you should you know you should have a few gift runs at the very least. Talk um, about Richard. You tell yeah. the story of the Duke of Norfolk and his butler. Can you remind oh, me? Of that? Oh right, oh, <laughs> yes. Duke of Norfolk used to host every visiting team to um, to Britain. Uh, Former the old Duke of Norfolk. Well, he took a team to uh, Australia to, as well. Yeah. Well, he, went, he, he was manager of the 1962-63 tour, but uh, he was a great cricket enthusiast. He hosted every uh, every visiting team at Arundel. There was always a convention that um, you know that His Grace was 
would score a few runs against the visitors. He'd play himself, score a few runs, and there would be no no appeals against him. Anyway, but uh, one young Australian fast bowler was carried away when he hit the Duke on the pads and appealed straight away. <laughs> and the Duke was given out um, by his butler, who was the umpire at the um, at the bowler's end. Um, his Duke, the Duke was given out with the words, His grace is not in. <laughs> Can you just tell one other story? I'd love you to tell us, Tom. Did you get involved in a boxing match in Kenya. Well, yes, yeah. so, so I don't know whether this counts as um as sports diplomacy or not, but uh, I was on a um I was having breakfast with the mayor of Nairobi. And he'd been as an one ex, does. Yeah. Uh, he was an, an ex heavyweight champion of Kenya. And he said I'm I'm thinking about making a comeback. He was raising some money for an orphanage and I said no chance, you know, look at the size of you now. Um, hmm. but if you make a comeback, I'll fight you. And then I forgot about it. And, and I was coming back into the country and landed in Nairobi airport and there was a huge kind of kerfuffle outside the plane. Lots of journalists around. I thought, yeah, there must be a kind of big politician or someone on board. And it turned out as I, as I disembarked that the whole press conference was set up for me. And they had a big sign up saying, Fletcher goes home on a stretcher. And this was, <laughs> and this was him challenging uh, this kind of upstart from the British High Commission yeah. uh, to, to a fight in six weeks' time. <laughs> and so I had six weeks, basically, um, to train with the, the middleweight team in Kenya, uh, to train hard, to, look, to basically to become a, a decent enough boxer to fight in front of 3,000 Kenyans uh, in the national stadium. And my motto, you know, Ali was, what was it? Float like a, a butterfly, sting like a bee. Mine was float like a bee, sting like a butterfly. <laughs> and uh, we, we turned up and, and, and had this fight. Uh, you know, as I came into the ring, 3,000 people chanting, um, Kill, kill, kill the Mazungu, kill the kill the, the white man, basically, the, the <laughs> diplomat. And so it was a pretty partisan crowd. Uh, and then he came out in all his kind of, kind of regalia. Um, and we fought four pretty fierce rounds before the referee wow. stepped in and, and stopped the fight. And the judges, you know, talking about people rigging the results and, and not giving uh, the Duke of Norfolk out and so on. The judges decided it was a diplomatic draw, regrettably. But to oh. this day, oh. Oh. to this day, Four I, rounds. I, I still maintain that uh, that I, I I beat Joe Ketch. And we did, the New York Times just recently did a kind of 25th anniversary because they'd done a, a piece on the fight. They did a 25th anniversary uh, get together, a reunion of the two of us. And to this day, I'm, I'm still telling him that I won. So Fletcher didn't leave on a stretcher. Not that yeah. time. Not that time. <laughs> Although I did, in, the, you know, in that in that earlier pretty Flintoff story, uh, where he hammered it straight back into my groin. I think I left on a stretcher that day. Look, you've been absolutely brilliant, fun, Tom. I don't know whether it's a greater loss to the diplomatic world or a, a, a greater um, advance or for the academic world, but. You're great value. Thank you so much. Well, I, I, I hope you. I hoped you were also going to say I'm a great loss to the sporting world, but um, you know, I won't take that too tragically that you left that one out. No, I, I wasn't going to leave that one out. I think it's a great loss. I think you have been a great loss to the sporting world, Tom. And I think, but I think you can be proud of retiring undefeated from the ring. <laughs> this is superb. I'm hoping that the Strollers cricket team are listening carefully to this podcast as I'm described to a great loss to the sporting world. I'll be dining off that for years. Absolutely. I'll, I'll repeat it again at dictation speed. Clearly a great loss to the sporting world. Tom, thank you very, very much for being with us. And um, Thank you. Goodbye for me, Richard Heller, on a, 
Uh, it's sunny here in south-east London, and it's still dashed cold. Peter Oborn says goodbye from Wiltshire. I bought a pair of long johns yesterday in, in Marks and Sparks in Salisbury. Thank goodness this is an audio rather than a visual um, medium. We're not going to demonstrate. Thank <laughs> you.